Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. Okay, so in this episode, I wanted to talk about education and more specifically the education system. It's pretty much the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, the education system really seems to lack attention to personal finance and getting people prepared not to just to be employees, but actual people in society. So today I'm interviewing an ex-middle school teacher about how the education system prepares students to handle their personal finances once they get out into the world on their own. Like I said, a big problem that I have with the education system that we have is that it really seems to only worry about preparing people to be employees and not just fully functioning adults. I mean, you could argue that uh, a lot of things are the responsibility of parents, and yes, they are, but I believe that the purpose of the education system should really be to educate on all areas of life that you'll need as a fully functioning adult, not just the ones you need to be an employee. So it really kind of gets under my skin that personal finance, among other topics, gets left out in the education system. So back towards the end of last year, I was at a luncheon uh, here at Station Houston where I heard a business pitch and I met a former middle school teacher, Rick Brennan. He was pitching his idea on his business, what he does for very innovative educational content for students. I thought it'd be really interesting to bring him onto the show and share his experience from the education system and students learning and learning things that they're not necessarily part of the school curriculum that are relevant for their lives because he seems to be really passionate about that. Rick was at a school here in Houston as a teacher and ended up leaving to pursue his own entrepreneurial ventures on his own which is what he's doing now. So, Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you uh, for inviting me. Yeah. So I invited you onto the show because it sounds like you have some really good ideas with respect to the education system. And uh, I think it's very relevant for what I'm trying to do here with the Post Money Plan of empowering people with education, specifically in the area of personal finance. So uh, thanks again for coming on, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say about education. Sure. Well, uh, you know, I can start a bit with my background. Yeah, and yeah. Maybe how I got into education and then how I got out of the classroom and into the business world. So I'm a longtime teacher turned game designer and entrepreneur, which I've learned over the last many years is a pretty unusual pathway towards business building. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I get asked to talk about my story a lot, so I'll keep it brief. Um, but essentially, I decided I wanted to be a social studies teacher for a very simple reason, and that was that I didn't feel like I got a strong social studies experience in high school. You mentioned we're here in Houston, which is obviously in Texas. And so many of my high school history teachers were football coaches, and there's nothing wrong with that except that it was obvious from their approach to teaching and learning that being a football coach was more important than being a history teacher. And so I literally had the experience on occasion of learning about key moments in history with those moments being drawn up on a whiteboard like a football play. And I didn't know that I didn't know. Meaning when I got to college, 
at the University of Houston and I was in my first history class, I realized how little history I actually knew. And for the first time, I started to think back to my high school history experiences and reconsider them. And I came to the conclusion that I felt robbed, to be quite honest with you. Even though I had gotten a, a good grade in the classes, I felt like I knew next to nothing and that I was going to walk around this planet a very ignorant person. <laughs> and I understood, I think, that that was quite dangerous. Ignorant people can be manipulated. Especially in a democracy. Exactly. I'm, <laughs> and I'm speaking specifically about that, in fact. Because if you don't know enough of your history or you know how things have come to be, then you know, you're really lost politically. And you're really susceptible to repeat the mistakes of the past. No doubt. No doubt. You're, you're easily manipulatable and you have this vast black hole where you should have some knowledge about history. And to me, history and social studies is as important as science or mathematics or any other subject. Unfortunately, social studies is sort of a second tier or a second class subject in most places. I can definitely relate to your experience of what you're talking about in history I just remember history being a boring subject back in school, but then as I've gotten older and appreciated basically the points that you're making about the value of history and how it educates us and prevents us from going down the paths that have happened already in the past, so that now as an adult, I really respect history and appreciate the value of it. So the challenge really is thinking about how do you make that conversion to make it stimulating and interesting and where students want to be learning because even beyond just history I think back to even as late as college where you would say like oh you're starting to be an adult there were so many classes and books you were supposed to read in classes mm -hmm. that now with more time and perspective and maturity I would very much be interested in or wish that I had actually read them mm -hmm. and didn't so that's like that's the big question that's the big challenge of how do you make that conversion to where students are incentivized and motivated and encouraged to actually be soaking in information when they have the time? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great question. In fact, that question guided my whole professional career as a teacher. How? How do you do that? That's not an easy answer to find. I think I was trained well at the University of Houston to go down that pathway to figure it out. But very early in my career, you know, I tried just about anything I could try. You know, I encouraged discussion and debate. I really focused on art. I thought maybe that would be a way to tap into students maybe who sometimes are not engaged. I would try role plays, simulations. And whenever I did that, I would have success. But what I noticed was, let's say, for example, I was doing a discussion and debate type class for that day. So I would harness the enthusiasm of the talkative kids of the ones who like to talk and speak out and debate, which wasn't the majority, let's say. Whereas I you know, energized that group, the quieter introverted group maybe wasn't as engaged. And that kind of dynamic of one step forward and one step back happened no matter what direction I took until I stumbled upon gameplay in the classroom. You probably remember when you were in a class, you know, back in the day, when the teacher brought out a game, even though it might have been a very lame game experience, <laughs> it was a different day. And the experience might have been more energetic, more electrified. That's how, as I put it. So now that you mention that, I'm actually remembering in third grade, I already loved my teacher. He was a great teacher. It was a great year. But I remember being mad that we went on summer vacation and I, I left school early before the end of the year. And I was mad about that 
because we were playing a game essentially like an in-class version of Oregon Trail almost. Yeah, love uh, Oregon Trail, yeah. And I was so mad that I got I had to miss the end of that game and I had to leave before my group got to the end of the trail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Based on the game-like experience that I had in my classroom, my class was completely transformed, mostly because the kids were transfixed by the experience. And so I taught sixth grade. And so in Texas, they only start social studies education in fourth grade and fifth grade. So I only, they only had two full years of social studies before I got them. And so I would always start my year by asking them, be honest, how many of you hate history or find it boring? Raise your hand. And it was two thirds regularly, more than that, usually. But, you know, on average, it's say about two thirds, which if you take a step back and think about that, that's quite sad that after only two years of social studies experience, these kids are already turned off to the subject. And so I always took it as a challenge. And I told them this. I said, listen, history is the greatest story ever told. It just gets lost in translation. Oh, that's a good quote. <laughs> and so this experience, please let me present history in a different way and have an open mind to it. And if you hated it, please give it a chance. And by the end of the year, I'm going to ask you this question again, and we'll see where the hands are. By the end of the year, they loved my class. They would want to eat lunch in my class and not go to the cafeteria. They wanted to start as soon as we got into the classroom. And my game was more of a simulation and a role play game. So the students would sort of act as their own governments and then they would direct their own mythological people through history and meet all the cultures and the people and places that were folded into the curriculum. So whereas before I had used the games in the classroom, I could never get the kids to read the textbook. I mean, the textbooks are boring for sure. And I didn't rely on the textbooks, but when we did use them, you know, it wasn't the greatest experience for them and it was always sort of a struggle to get them into it. Once the gameplay began and they were using it now to do well in the game, because the, be the more history you knew, the better you did in this game, I couldn't get them to stop reading the textbook. And it was that kind of transformation that I started to see through everything in my classroom. The questions the students would ask would be elevated because I would give the kids a preview on Friday about what was coming the next week. When kids would come to school on Monday, they'd already done research over the weekend and came with files of stuff that they could use to do better into the game. I had students who would sew their own flags for their own people, author their own national anthems for their own people. I never asked them to do any of these things. Then I had this experience one day where I understood one of my great students shared with me after class one day that he was taking the materials from my class and taking them home with him so that he could act as the game show host for the game with his siblings and his family. And that they were having so much fun doing that that other families in the neighborhood were coming over on family, you know, family game night on Friday. And a whole neighborhood was playing this game that I had created. And the students were acting as the teachers and the parents were acting as the students. And once I learned that, it was like a revelation. I thought, maybe I've stumbled on something that's very powerful by accident. And maybe this is useful to teachers around the country, maybe around the world, who knows. And I decided at that point that I wanted to try to take this outside of my classroom because I wanted to prevent that terrible teaching experience that I had in high school in world history. And I thought, well, if you have this kind of experience, even if you were a substitute, let's say, you could have a successful classroom. Even though you might not have no context of the classroom, you don't know the kids' names, but this machine, once it's in motion, created some brilliant things. 
So I started to reach out to video game companies around the country. I got lots of interest immediately and eventually was able to do a deal with a company called Eline Media. And now I work in conjunction with their ed tech initiatives. I sometimes work on their ed tech products for them. And then I find nice, happy homes for the things that they're creating here in Houston, Texas. And one of the things that we're working on, you know, among many things, is getting this game out into the world. So that, that actually leads me into my other question that I was going to ask. Based on your experience in the classroom and the stark contrast between like the traditional teaching model and with a, a game and mm-hmm. interactive model, what do you notice or what seems like some of the problems or deficiencies with the traditional education model of intriguing students about a subject like history or finance or whatever? What are some of the problems you see there? Well, I think I, one is I wonder the necessity of that traditional model anymore. There's so much great content for almost any area of interest, free, online, that teachers don't necessarily any longer need to be content experts, or they don't need to necessarily be the source of the knowledge. So, for example, lecturing doesn't, to me, make much sense at this point, especially with younger middle school, maybe even high school age students, because that that approach, I think, especially in modern times where kids are using technology, they're probably more proficient with technology in many cases than the adults that are teaching them. That kind of sit and listen and then go do something systematic, let's say, that kind of experience I think is waning and it's not effective like it once was. So rather than take that approach, teachers might have more success if they are finding those resources online and using those resources and then perhaps designing dynamic experiences around that content so that the students are learning in a different way, learning through doing. And the teacher then, I think, can help guide them through that experience. And that's where the teaching is happening. Rather than me teach you the key vocabulary and the key sections of this theory or that, that kind of learning, I think, is less necessary for teachers to lead. And teachers acting as designers to a certain extent to design dynamic experiences and then acting as the guide on the side for the students so that they're helping them get to their goals That I think is very likely the future of education or teaching, I hope, because that kind of approach, I think, will one, engage the students and get better results, but also teachers are suffering. The profession is disintegrating. What I was promised as a profession rarely exists for anyone. I only wanted to be a teacher to do good and create. I didn't want to take someone else's worksheet or this guidebook and say, here you go, kids, this is what we're going to do. I wanted to work with them and create something for them that would take them to that next level. And that desire to create was part and parcel to my profession. And what I saw over my 13 years in the classroom was slowly but surely that was being eroded. And teaching went away from, hey, you're a creator and a leader and a facilitator and all those sorts of things to, you know, you're preparing them for the test. And the test is all important because funding gets attached to it. Teacher pay got attached to it in my professional life in the classroom. And even funding for the school and maybe even the principal's service, the length of their service as principal, all became affected by test scores tied to funding. And so my 13-year 
professional career in the classroom, I really saw the evolution of that approach, which was not why I got into the classroom. Yeah. And so I was sort of faced with this dilemma to a certain extent because about 13 years into my career, I had uh, someone come into my classroom from the district I was teaching at the time just to watch my class. And they loved what they saw. They loved the game. Very complimentary of the beauty of the game and how it worked seamlessly. Great compliments. But then you had this, but, and I knew before she finished her sentence that I was about to hear very bad news. Essentially, what I was told was that because my game made my class unique and all of the students had to have a similar experience across the district or else it's unfair, I had to stop using this system that was having such great results, I couldn't even believe it. (laughs) And so my heart sort of sunk in real time when I heard her say this because I realized they were going to take this away from my class and that was the best thing for my students. Yeah. It just so happened that I was also offered this opportunity to leave the classroom and start my own company at virtually the same time. And so I almost felt like it was a sign that this door is closing, but this one is opening. And if you don't take this opportunity to start your own company, although I never thought I would ever be a business person, that I'll always wonder what could have happened and what might I have done. So I left the profession that I thought I would never leave to try. Well, just to go back to your earlier point, I very much agree and would say the entire ethos of the post money plan that I'm trying to do is really empower people themselves to educate themselves and just be really the facilitation for that. And it sounds like your approach as a teacher was to really do the same thing. Instead of, okay, I'm going to hand you this worksheet and you're dependent on this for me is you're providing the space, the opportunity. And it sounds like through a game that that really enabled an opportunity for the students to be engaged and desiring to pursue the information and learn themselves. I think there's really something to that that could really be applied not just to history, but to personal finance, to really any subject. And you're making me think what kind of games could students be playing in school on personal finance? You know, like if there was some kind of investing game that you started at the beginning of a year. The game of life. The game of life, yeah. Or, uh, I don't know, different games like Monopoly or whatever that kids really enjoy and are motivated by, but then without realizing it, end up learning a bunch of useful knowledge that would be really relevant in in the area of personal finance to be learning, applying your math learning. For example, in Monopoly, Mm -hmm. like investing in in good property and then you're getting a return on that investment and little things like that. It's interesting you mentioned Monopoly because I don't think it's considered a learning game necessarily, but I think it really is. And if you reverse engineer the history of this game, If I'm right, I think it was produced during the Great Depression. And so the game makers, I think, were trying to show the risks of the rise of trusts and monopolies. And that was the intent. Because when you win the game or when you're losing the game, you're really starting to feel like, hey, this is really unfair. (laughs) You know, how can this be the way it works? And aha, that's the reason. Now that game has transformed because now really that's the point of it. To a certain extent, the over time, the intent of that game, I think, has transformed. But the original idea of the game was, let's teach people about the growing threat of monopolies and, and trusts. And it did so through a game. I think that kind of approach is a very smart approach because games and, and gameplay is 
it's like a language itself. If you look into across cultures, games exist across cultures. They exist across epochs. Early humans, there's examples of them playing games. And so I think play and learn are inextricably linked. I have little ones at home. I know that they learn through play. I've watched them. Our systems of education, unfortunately, are much less joyous than our innate ability to learn. I sometimes think if we just got out of the way as educators, we might do a better job. Yeah, so what I feel like I'm hearing from you is engagement and empowerment are the two really big things that would enable a lot of learning to develop. And I think maybe it's the same word, but I think student agency, them having some control over what they're doing. Often, Think about it when we went to school. You sat there in rows and columns mostly. You were quiet for most of the day or you got in trouble and you filled in blanks or whatever, filled out worksheets. That's not very engaging of an experience. And after you do that for many years, I think this might even be why you start to see dropouts. Because after many, many years of that kind of treatment, you might wonder, well, what am I doing here? This is such a terrible experience for me. And I know the problem is multifaceted, but I do think that having students have agency over what they're learning, having them have input, having them some directional control over how they do things and where they move and have it aligned to their own innate passions, let's say. I mean, that's powerful stuff. And what we're doing right now is so markedly different from that that I think we've, you know, to a certain extent lost our way. I unfortunately don't remember the article that well, but I did see one the other day talking about kids maybe around the age of five being like off the charts on creativity and then other kids being tested at the age of like high school age. And by then they're way, way lower on the creativity scale. Maybe it's just a natural process of growing up and experiencing the world and you become less creative, but maybe it's part of our education system and the way we, we learn and teach. And that is really quashing the yeah. creativity. Well, how do you create, how do you creatively fill in a bubble on a test sheet? Right. You can't. So often the final most important thing that a student does is fill out a bubble sheet for a standardized test. And there is no creative way of doing that. An interesting, maybe a sad aside to what you're saying is my last year in, as a teacher, my 13th year, for the first time in my career, when I would say, you know, I'd always emphasize creativity, right, in my classroom. And I had students the last year I taught ask me, what does that mean? <laughs> and I never had to explain that word when I started over that 13-year period of time, testing was encroaching and everywhere. And I started to make the connections that I wonder how much of this, what is creativity type thinking, linked to they're not being asked to do that creative work anymore, even in elementary school. They're tested even at kindergarten and first grade. And it's not just the testing days. At my school, and this was not my school specific, this was just policy across the district, you had test prep days that would sometimes number weeks and weeks of the school year. And the reason for that, funding to the school, maybe even your tenure as a teacher or a principal was all linked to how the kids did on the test. And so that becomes all important, the most important thing. And that's not a creative pathway. That's definitely not a creative pathway. When I left the classroom, sad to say, I had this thought in my head that maybe I need to leave the classroom in order to help save it. Because Teachers, people think teachers are very powerful people, and in some ways they are. We are, I suppose. But you, you get 
handed a script. You have all the rules put on top of you. And there's very little deviation within those parameters. And if you, even in my case, right, I created this thing. I did all this extra work. Uh, you know, I did that on my own time. And, um, you know, that didn't bear out. They told me to stop doing that, basically. So uh, there's a lot of issues there in the, in the classroom that I, th I think affect creativity. And I agree with you that it's a, it's a major problem. So kind of changing the angle, how about from the student's perspective? So I'm thinking of personal finance. Mm -hmm. And if there's a student who's observing that certain things aren't being taught, they're not learning personal finance in school or something like that. What are your thoughts? Like, what are your recommendations? Like, how can they be going out and learning themselves or empowering themselves? So I think, well, a couple of things here. One positive development. I hate to sound so negative on education. One thing that I think is really positive about what's happening here in Texas, and maybe it's happening around the country too. I hope that it is. For a very long time, there's been this career readiness emphasis, or excuse me, college ready emphasis, where everyone's going to go to college when not everyone does go to college. And so now in Texas, we're creating two pathways for students, which is, yes, let's have a college ready pathway, but let's also have a career ready pathway so that students are imbued with life skills, marketable skills professional skills and they can get credentialed by the time they graduate so that if they're not going to go to college, they can earn a good living and enter a profession that they have a passion for. I'm all for that kind of education. And those trajectories that are being built now are including more emphasis on some of the things that you're talking about, personal finance and things like that. And more and more money is going to go into that despite massive budget cuts everywhere else. So I think maybe we're at a low point at this second right now on that kind of education and that it is moving in the other direction now and will improve. I do a lot of work with career and technical education with uh, local districts here. And so I know what they're attempting to do and what's going on behind the scenes and I'm very supportive of it. I think it will take a long time to roll out because you're essentially creating professional pathways for almost any kind of profession. So that's a lot of work. And that's a long time. But I think the work is worth it. And I think ultimately it will serve our society you know, much better. From my own company's point of view, Histrionics Learning, we've taken this up as an issue ourselves. We, we have a product or program that we offer called Life Design, which rubs up against what you're talking about at the very least and includes those kinds of questions and the thinking about personal finance in the overall program. But essentially Life Design is this. Students are asked to make big decisions about where you're going to go to high school and where you're going to go to college, even in middle school. But they're not guided through that experience. And in my case, you know, we don't have lots of college degrees in my family. And so I didn't necessarily come from a household where it was driven into my head. You're going to college and you have the money and this is my alma mater. Like that was not my experience. And that's for many folks, I think, not their experience. And so I understand very well how, how difficult it might be to pierce that culture and get to college if that's not in your background already. And so life design essentially takes middle school students and it teaches them to be design thinking citizens, to learn design thinking skills, and then to apply them to their own life, to plan the pathway forward so that they make the amount of money that they know they need because they do a personal finance budget. And they start to think through, hey, what does it take if I'm gonna live in an apartment a house, a high rise, 
you know, one bedroom, whatever. Like they don't even know about these kinds of things. And so part of the project is to have them work through that and create what they think is their budget. And then this application we use tells them, all right, if you want to live that kind of baller lifestyle, right? You have to make 80,000 a year. So here's the jobs that are 80,000 a year. Which ones are you interested in? And then you can go and do a deeper dive into those professions. Yeah, that's um, pretty interesting. And I think useful because I feel like in the past that really hasn't been done. And kids aren't really getting that opportunity to think in those terms. And if you really want to live that kind of lifestyle, well, that, that means certain things. Absolutely. And also it gives them the opportunity. To, they don't get to think about themselves in school very much at all. Mm. And this is a sandbox program where they get to, for six weeks, sit in the sand and play with these tools, think about their own lives. It's almost like the class we all wish we had back in the day. And we're hoping to make that happen. Okay. Kind of changing tax. Mm -hmm. In your experience, like what did you see in schools and the curriculum on personal finance or just what is your intuition in terms of what students are learning about personal finance and how to be responsible for money and you're sort of putting your finger on the problem because I'm meeting with these teachers and they're expected to teach these things sans curriculum. So a lot of these teachers are just finding whatever resources they can that are free because budget cuts are real. And so they're expected to teach these things, but the district doesn't provide a base curriculum. And that was the reason why we created Life Design because we wanted to have this base curriculum that would help guide the experience so that students would be thinking big and be making thoughtful decisions about their future plans. So I guess the short answer is it's something that's expected to be taught in middle school and high school. But what I'm finding by working with my teacher clients, it's more abundant in, in the sense of there's nothing there for them to use. They're not being provided with any standard curriculum. And so if you go to any class like this, you'll see vastly different experiences. Mm. vastly different experiences. And so when I, in the classrooms that I go and I train teachers on life design, one of the things they're most happy about is that thank you for providing me with something that I can give my kids that is useful because we don't have that right now. Now that's sort of a sad indictment on it. I'm not in every classroom and my guess is this is a endemic problem in this particular classroom across middle schools and high schools in Houston. It is my goal to grow life design so that perhaps it could be the base curriculum that most students might use. We're seeing really good results from that. But it's, it's a conundrum because there's that expectation to teach it. They presumably think it's important enough to put into the curriculum, but yet there's very little materials and resources for the teachers. And I'm really hoping that what we're providing fills that void. I just know from my personal experience, I don't remember a whole lot in school about finance and how to use money until in my master's program, because it was a master's in finance. Of course, I was getting lots of finance and learning about investing and all that stuff. But even then, it's about really emphasizing on corporate finance, not personal finance. And the thing that really irks me or that I'm concerned about is that like, it doesn't matter what profession you're going to go into or where you're going to go in life. You're going to earn money and you're going to spend money and be responsible for it. And having those skills is going to be very valuable to you regardless of what you're doing. So it seems negligent to me for that to be omitted from curriculum or at least from the education process to be very wisely educated on personal finance. Well, strangely, it might be the most important thing you would learn in school. Because it, like, it doesn't matter what you do. Financial you, illiteracy is unfortunately rampant yeah. amongst young people. 
and they get out into the real world and they really don't know what money is or how it works or the value of it. And oftentimes they haven't had the opportunities, let's say, to think deeply about other possibilities that might not seem obvious to them. And if you don't have that experience already as a family member, let's say, of someone showing you, well, this is how you even apply for college, then it becomes a much more difficult task for that person to overcome. So, you know, I think another thing is that this, this kind of knowledge is oftentimes mixed into an information technology class. So you're getting into a class where you're supposed to learn manipulating technology, and then they'll use that in a sliver of that space to teach personal finance. When to me, that's not even the right context. There needs to be a completely new class or subject around this, which at one point I think did live in most schools, but over the last 20 years, let's say, or 30 years maybe, it's vanished along with a lot of the vocational programs and things that used to be part of the high school experience. And now we're sort of going back to that model here in Texas after, you know, moving away from it for many years. So, you know, teachers, I think, oftentimes feel this, I don't know, this vertigo of like the pendulum is going back and forth and we seem to be doing things. 20 years ago, we did things a certain way and now we're sort of coming back to some of those ideas again after experimenting in a different realm and figuring that it's not really serving all of our kids. Yeah, and I would say that I'm very much betting on a shift in the the way people end up learning. I'm very much betting on empowerment. I guess you would call agency part of it. People having control of what they're learning and the direction that they want to take. I'm trying to reach people through online content that they can choose what they want and what to like go further and deeper into and then buy online courses. It's just another extension of that, that it's like you can reach it when you want, where you want, what you want. Then it's just a matter of being motivated to pursue knowledge on a specific area, which I think kind of ties in with what you were originally talking about of getting people excited about learning things through, basically, you're talking about incentives. So incentivizing someone to learn. That can be through like a game or Mm -hmm. something like that. People are excited about it. So I, I think that's something that we all should be thinking about going forward in the future, both as teachers, but then as a student. And I say student, not just like as a young person, but mm-hmm. as someone in life who wants to learn. Right. Keeping that in mind. I think, it's, uh, I think that's a good comment. I agree with it. I totally agree with it. I know we're running short on time, yeah. but just the last parting question that I wanted to make is any last thoughts about how we could improve personal finance education for students as they're growing older and and making decisions going into life, what could students be doing to empower themselves on personal finance? I think there's a lot you can do. Will they do it? That's another thing, because if if we're asking the students to sort of go outside the bounds of school and do this on their own, that's automatically going to be leveling down the number of participants. So I think one thing we can do is take an approach. I mean, I, I hate to say I have figured this out because I don't think I have figured this out, but I have seen lots of success taking a design-centric approach to education, meaning designing dynamic experiences for the, for the students alongside them, for them, with them, right? Like a team in that sense. And I think if teachers do that with their students, it'll surface naturally what the kids want to learn and what they need to learn. And I think once you tap into that, you're on your way. 
Because if, if the student wants to learn something, they'll go way beyond what the, the artificial limitation that you might put on it. And so I really do think looking at education from a design perspective and thinking, what is it that I'm trying to achieve? And then working with those students in an empathetic way can immerse them in an experience that motivates them. How do we do that if we're not doing that? I don't know, right? If we're not going to take that approach in schools, how are we going to have the kids do this on their own? I don't know. I would say that there's more and more tools online to be able to do these kinds of things, even for the life design program that I mentioned before. We use digital tools that are widely available for people for free. So for example, there's a website called Texas Reality Check, and there's one called Texas Gear Up. I mean, they're state-centric, so it's not universally helpful, let's say, but I would still say that they're very useful tools. And you can go on this, and they'll do an analysis of your interests and, and your passions and the professions that align to those things, and you can do deeper dives. And I would say looking online and, and seeking out these kinds of experiences, if you're not getting them from school, would be your best bet. Hopefully, histrionics is helping to advance that cause because I see it as my life's mission and I see it as something that is instrumental to the future success of public schooling. Uh, I know you got to run, so I'll go ahead and wrap us up there. I want to thank you so much for yeah, coming on the show. This and is awesome. I love it. Sharing the perspective on the education system because I think it's a vital, vital piece of the puzzle going forward for empowering people to become full-fledged adults. <laughs> no doubt. And what you're doing here, I think, is helping contribute to a solution. That's what I say. The things that you're providing to your you know, listeners and to your readers, you know, it's important stuff. I think you've pinpointed an area where there needs to be a lot of work. And you may have put your finger on the most important thing that students need to learn to live outside of high school, right? And to succeed in the real world. So I thank you for, for doing this because if more folks were taking this initiative, then I think we would be closer to solutions than we are right now. I do want to end on maybe a positive note and say, I think here in Texas, we are slowly figuring it out. And I think over the next many years, you'll start to see more of the types of things that you would like to see in school than you do today. And I'm making the pledge to do what I can to make that happen. That is a great note to end on. All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. All right. No, no worries. Catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. Mm -hmm.